I don't get it. When I was first out there, I get the boat to turn the way I wanted, so the wind was over deck the way I wanted. I get it to slow down, speed up, whatever I wanted them to do. Occasionally, when the wind's howling, I'd have them go downwind, so the relative window of the deck was very, very long. I always got cooperation from the boat. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back, finally, to another episode. We fell off the horse there for a little bit and life got busy, but hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to get the episodes cranking out again as we roll into the first part of 2016. Thanks to everyone that checked in with me to make sure I hadn't had a uh, car accident or anything similar. And as always, thanks very much for your feedback and encouraging words. I really love being able to get these stories and interviews out to you, the listener, wherever you are hanging out in the world. And I get to learn so much in the process too. So hopefully between all of us, we can uh, come out of it and just be slightly better aviators uh, by sharing this type of information and uh, stories around. I'll chat a little bit more about it at the end of the show and give a couple of shout outs to individual listeners too. Given that today we're talking about tuna helicopter ops, there will be a bunch of you that won't be surprised at all to hear that it is Francis Mayrick that we are chatting with. Francis is probably better known as Moggy, the author of Moggy's Tuna Manual. Indeed, Tony Blumson on the show Facebook page already picked who it was going to be from some photos that I put up. So uh, Moggy's a fairly well-known person in this part of the, of the industry. Now, I didn't even know that tuna flying was a thing for at least five years after getting a license. My first introduction to it was videos on YouTube showing MD500s, low-level, hooking around in tight banks over fishing tenders, you know, with these rock soundtracks sort of playing over the top. And when I went online looking for guests for the show to talk about this part of the helicopter industry, Moggy's tuna manual kept coming up in different places. So I grabbed a copy and really had my eyes open as there is a heap more to the tuna flying role than I would have ever first thought. And there is way more than we can get to cover in, in one interview, but this will definitely give you a taste for what it involves and who knows, it might be something you want to have a crack at at trying at some point in your own career. We catch up with Francis in Texas, and I've just asked him about his flying experience before he first arrived in the tuna fields. Francis Moggy Merrick, thank you very much for being able to join us on the Rotary Wing Show, so welcome. Hey, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, all right, and I guess we'll I'll switch back and forth between Francis and, and Moggy because uh, obviously you're only talking about tuna flying and there's uh, Moggy's uh, tuna flying manual that we'll uh, refer to, which is the book you've written. But um, Francis, before we get in the, in the tuna flying, like it sounds like you got to tuna flying after you'd done a, a couple of other things in your flying career, whereas many other folks, it could be you know a very early hour building type exercise. So before you actually hit the tuna fields, what was your previous flying experience? Um, I've done quite a lot. I'd uh, done a lot of instructing, R22, which I really enjoyed. I'd done a lot of fixed-wing flying. And I spent a few years flying uh, Super Pumas AS332 North Sea, um, full IFR, 
which I was really discouraged with. It was really boring. And I wasn't too happy doing that. Um, I had a lot of fixed wing time, a lot of instructing, tours, stuff like that. And then went over to the States and did my AMP license. Airframe Power Plan wanted to do that. Heard about tuna flying, and I'm like, wow, that's what I want to do. So helicopters was a lot of instruction, flying tours, uh, some business flying, road traffic work, you know, the usual ENG. Two years in off-sea, and then uh, somebody mentioned huge 500s and tuna flying, and boom, I was gone. <laughs> right, and yeah, we'll talk about it, your first experience, but uh, yeah, going from a, a Puma in the North Sea back, you know, to like a, a Bell 47 um, in, the, in the Pacific, yeah, it would have been a, a bit of a change, but you talk about, um, and you write in your book about your first experience, but yeah, you want to talk folks through your, you know, your first landing on, on a tuna boat and uh, what you kind of knew at that stage. It was kind of a funny old thing. I arrived in Guam. I got uh, I got quoted seven thousand a month, and I was way back in the nineties. So, oh yeah, I'm good for that, tax free. I landed, and uh, they told me the boat had already sailed. So I had like a fifty minute check out in the Bell Forty Seven. Told that I was a brilliant pilot, and basically head south, you can't miss it. So they filled me up, and I didn't even know what the tuna boat looked like. I kind of knew the name. So. <laughs> Knowing absolutely nothing, I'm thinking, well, I kind of worked out my point of no return every stage. I'd have to turn around because you can't miss it. There's all kinds of boats out there. And uh, eventually I found the Shifeng 707, and I was literally at my decision point and flew around it and figured out where the helideck was. Thought, well, hey, oh, here we go. And that was really my checkout of my first landing on a two boat. And it went real good. I enjoyed it, but it was probably. Uh, a little unusual. Well, hopefully, if someone's finding themselves in the, in the same situation and they've been able to listen to this interview, they're going to be going, you know, much more armed because, uh, and I spoke just before we hit uh, record as well, it's just amazing that there can be so many different jobs in the helicopter industry and, you know, each one you need to know how to get a helicopter from A to B, but there's so much detail, you know, whether it's film flying or military or what we're going to talk about today um, in each individual job. So there's all these terms, there's foamer and blackwater and breezer and brown balls, all these sort of fi- uh, fishing and tuna terms we'll, we'll kind of cover. But uh, yeah, can you describe a like your, your average tuna boat and uh, how the helicopter fits into the whole operation? Because there's a, a lottery ad here in Australia that used to run and it used to have a, a guy fishing and then it zoomed out, and he's um, got his rod, and he's fishing out the side of a helicopter. And I guess the, uh, the you know the story they were trying to portray is you know once you win the lottery, you can go fishing with your own helicopter. But uh, for most folks, it just wouldn't seem economical. So, how does the yeah? Can you just describe I guess the background for the, the tuna operations, uh, how the helicopters fit in, and and what a tuna boat That's looks good. like? And uh, I have the exact same thing. The idea, like, how on earth can we afford a helicopter, you know, because we think helicopters are very expensive. Oh, my goodness. It's peanuts compared with what they were doing. And I learned that real quick. In those days, I mean, the price of tuna, uh, skipjacking yellowfin, uh, varies an awful lot during the Iraq war. It went through the roof. So yellowfin can be anywhere, anywhere between $1,000 a ton to $2,500 a ton, depending on market, market conditions. And the same for skipjack. A good catch, a really good one. I mean, the average catch is probably 30 to 50 tons, but a good catch can be 200, 300 tons. But if you do the numbers on, you know, if you multiply 300 tons by $1,700, you get a humongous amount of money, which is an awful lot more than the cost of the helicopter for the whole year. 
So if the helicopter does really well, finds the right fish, finds the right log, keeps the fish inside the nest, it can pay for itself in one really good day's operation. So from the cost point of view, the helicopter is small beer compared with the cost of operating a ship and the potential prize of the fish. The way it works, basically two major aspects to it, I guess. One is that we go looking for fish, and then that's where you mentioned earlier, we run into foamers and breezers. We'll see 50 miles away from the boat, we'll see the surface of the ocean will go all white where the fish are jumping at, chasing bait fish or whatever, and it's just an amazing sight. It's really beautiful. That's your former. Breezer is where they're underneath the surface, but they're disturbing the wave action. That's one thing that we're really interested in because there's fish, and there's another aspect to that is the logs. A lot of the bait fish will hide around the log. That attracts the tuna. So there comes a point, it's like the tuna will adopt a log as their home for a few days, and we can talk about log fishing. So we're looking for fish is really the important aspect of it. Second aspect, herding. Herding is, people always say herding. <laughs> you herd fish? Yep, just like cattle. When I first saw it, I could not believe what I was seeing. It seemed to be totally bizarre. When the offshore waves are coming through, you can have 8, 10, 15 foot waves. You'll literally be down so low, you'll have waves up on both sides of you. You know, you'll be lifting up, letting a wave go under you, coming back down. You're herding the fish, you're keeping them in the net. More often than not, it doesn't work, but sometimes it works spectacularly. If you have a situation where there's a lot of fish in the net and the wave action starts driving the net below the surface, the helicopter, by making a lot of noise and skidding up and down, can frighten the fish to where they stay inside the net. So in broad um, definition, one aspect is hunting for fish, and the other aspect is herding, and there's a little bit of personnel transfer, EMS, Medifac, going for shopping, stuff like that. But those are the broad categories of what you do as a tuna pilot. The boats you asked about, they vary from sublime to the ridiculous. Some, some of J.M. Martinek, which is an American boat. We had white tablecloths, we had silver spoons, we had a cook that I felt like I wanted to hijack. The food was fantastic, the quality of life, everything was just a lot of the American boats are beautiful. Some of the Taiwanese, Taiwanese and Korean boats are kind of rougher, a little more primitive. Um, your cabin and all that is it's not exactly first class. But, you know, if you think the toilet gets it on, it becomes fun. But, you know, it's perfectly livable, put it that way. Well, we'll come back to some of those bits and pieces. Um, Boggy, I was just going to ask about the history. Do you know when, like, did you look back at all and research, like, when the, the first tuna boat operations happened? Like, was there someone who kind of pioneered the whole field? That's a, an interesting thing. I believe it goes way, way back to when Bell 47s first came out. I was trying to research exactly that. I couldn't actually find concrete examples of who was the first. But when you go back to the Z fishing and all that, um, certainly in the 60s, is my understanding, it was well established. <laughs> tuna fishing and you know, successfully so big Z had helicopters out there and then of course in South America it's a big business as well the exact uh, chronology and the history of the start I'm not too sure but I'd love to know more about it but it's it's a long established helicopter industry going back oh I want to say somewhere mid 60s for sure okay and can you give some idea of the, the uh, geography so you mentioned uh, Guam as one of the bases is there a couple of major bases, and can you take us through like the key companies as well involved? I never flew in the um, 
Eastern. Uh, I never flew, you know, South America, Panama, uh, Costa Rica. I'd love to. We have, from the point of view of your listeners, Australian Kiwi pilots. There's Hanson helicopters and there's Tropic, and there's uh, Pesca helicopters that I know about. It's another Australian company. I forget his name. He's running uh, Robinsons. Uh, Tropic are Ponape. Hanson are still in uh, Guam with bases, and Pesca helicopters are still in Guam. Typically, the life of a tuna pilot takes him. I mean, for a young guy, for an adventure, it takes you all over. You know, you'll see Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Rapal, Honiara, Kiribati, Tarawa. I mean, it's a high-opening cultural experience. I mean, you really travel over huge differences. Pacific Ocean is absolutely massive. If you even just look at the chart and draw a line from you know, Hawaii to Guam to Papua New Guinea, you get an idea of what a big puddle of water it is, you know. So we literally all over. I think for a young guy, in terms of adventure, boy, it's hard to beat We'll chop and change through different bits and pieces here, but say you're operating a Taiwanese boat and you're, you're porting in and out of, um, say, Papua New Guinea, do you come in and out of the same ports all the time, or will it depend on you just steam to the closest port uh, to, the, to the fishing area? That's a lot of things. No, the ports change a lot. It depends where you're fishing, where you catch the fish. It depends where the refrigeration ship on which you're going to transship your cargo is going to go. In other words, you might be going to Weewak, Papua New Guinea, and you'll go there trip after trip after trip until you think it's permanently Weewak, and all of a sudden you're in Rabal, um, the other side, and next thing you're in Honiara, or you're in Eastern Island. It depends where, once you've filled up the fish, where you're closest to, where the transshipment ship is, and where the owner tells you to go. So it's very much a variable. I've lost track of how many places I've gone to, but it would be several several dozen, I think, altogether. On that, how, how does the licensing work? Do you fly off a, a US license that's then recognized and, you know, maps and charts and like those little I sort of uh, logistical things? Yeah, I had no problem. I had the, uh, I was dual racing. I had the United Kingdom Civil Aviation Authority, ATP, and then, you know, dual instructor ratings, instrument ratings, and the same for the FAA. But nobody was really interested in the, uh, the Civil Aviation Authority licenses, they all just want to see your FAA licenses. And even that's sort of almost cursory. You know, they're more interested in could you fly, hence the stories about people that were flying out there that had no license at all, courtesy of this um, session in the custodian custodianship of the United States government. <laughs> so FAA will do just fine. And maps and charts. How do you uh, how do you get those for the different areas? It's not very it's not very much of a chart intensive environment because remember you're going to be offshore. It's it's now in those days uh, I was there very much in the 90s. GPS wasn't all conquering yet. These days guys are so addicted to their GPSs that I think even dead reckoning is a is a failing skill. So you're not really too worried about charts. You're in, more than anything else, you're interested in your position to the ship. And that's a, a whole section in the tuna manual because guys get themselves in trouble big time. You've only got one landing place to go to, your boat, and your boat, your boat could be cruising. So you can't rely on you know, gauges, dial, GPS, whatever the heck it is, everything can blow up. You've got to have a picture in your head of what's happening. And you read the tuna manual, you know, there's a whole section on being real careful. 
that you have a, a dead reckoning capability to get you out of trouble. So it's, it's very different from what a lot of guys have done. We're not sitting there with a chart navigating from you know, across country looking at railway lines and roads. You know, in a heartbeat, you're out of sight of the boat. I mean, we'll range, as your confidence builds up, you'll range 40, 50, 60 miles from the boat, you know, looking for a fish. And the boat has long gone over the horizon and it's moving. And you've certainly, I quote the example in the manual where they gave us the wrong left and longitude of the boat. And but for the fact that I could work out in my head that that was an impossibility for the boat to get there that fast at a cruising speed of 12 knots, we'd have gone off to a, an empty part of the ocean. So it's not really charts, it's more situational awareness, and you've got to have a mental picture of what's going on. And equipment will blow up, you can't rely on the electronic um, stuff. We were flying along one day and our radio went on fire, everything went on fire, I was staring in amazement. All this flames and smoke coming out as the entire radio stack just went up and smoke. I had a picture in my head, knew where we were going, and we were just fine. But I would say there, you know, don't rely on the electronics. And that's something I reckon I'd find that the uh, the most uncomfortable part. Uh, and I guess you get used to any kind of operation you're doing. But I've only been offshore once, where I've been outside of the boat, and you know, the boat was our you know, one place that you said to go back and land. And uh, yeah, you're just surrounded by ocean and you can't see it. And uh, yeah, so I've only done that once, and yeah, it's even, even reading the book and, and, and talking to you and thinking about you know just being able to see miles, and miles of ocean and not being able to see your landing point. Um, I, I, you know, I guess you, as you do more of it, you get used to it. But definitely sitting here pitching that now, it, uh, it makes me uncomfortable. No, I think you're wise. I mean, you're very wise, and I'd say to guys, you know, build up slowly. You know, do 15 miles, 20 miles, check out the gear, check out the situation. Don't rely on the equipment. Make sure you've got a mental picture. Know which way the boat is going. And I described in uh, Blip on the Radar, book a show series I described being called to the bridge and, and running up to the bridge, and there's a helicopter uh, hopping off the bow, and the guy's freaking out. He's running out of gas. He's in panic. He knew who I was, and he's like, well, yeah, I'm running out of gas, and I'm lost. I don't know where our boat is. And that was just a classic example. And it happens. Guys run out of gas, got themselves in all kinds of trouble. We ran up there, lifted off, got him full of gas, made a bunch of radio calls, figured out where his boat is. He was so shaken up, I had to formate with him and guide him to his boat. So your concern is right. I mean, people really get themselves lost, you know, get frustrated, get, you know, scared. Just build up to it slowly, you know, accept that your equipment can malfunction, keep a picture in your head of what's going on build up to it slowly. Just because day one the cat wants to go 50 miles away, uh-huh, I don't have the experience. You know, I've done 25 miles, thank you very much, we'll, we'll call a halt and just slowly build up to it. As you get experience, I was there for five years, you, you'll rattle off 60 miles, but you know what's going. You trust your crew, you know the direction of the ship, and like I say, the avionics could go on fire, you still got a real shrewd idea where you're going. And that's something that comes with time. You know, so we, we always err on the side of caution, caution, caution. You know, the aim is safety, safety. There's a great slogan in the helicopter industry, zero is possible. And I believe that. I've had, uh, you know, um, 46 years flying helicopters, and I've never scratched one, you know, touch wood. I frightened the daylights out of myself, I've never scratched one. Zero is possible, and that's what we're going to go for. So. Just take your time. Build, build it up. Don't rush it. Just 
softly, softly, softly. Be prepared to say no. You know, don't let anybody push you into it. And that's a big factor. When you look at the accidents, people allowing themselves to be pushed. I mean, how many times they're screaming at a new guy to get off in a hurry because of a former, and they forget to tie down, this goes wrong. And again, in blip on the radar, I described a, a friend of mine getting killed, and it's a true story. His first takeoff from a tuna boat, he died. And it was directly as a result of rushing, you know, going beyond the ability. Slow it down. I just can't. That's my, my, my attitude towards all that. And actually, it really comes through in the in the writing too. And you know, I have no intention of you know operating off of tuna boats at this stage of my life with a family and things like that. But um, you know, even knowing that and reading through and just picking up a bit of uh, you know your kind of ethos and how you approach things, uh, there's, there's lots just to take away for you know other helicopter operations as well. So that really comes through. Well, you started mentioning there, so that helicopter is running out of fuel and he came and landed on the, on the heli deck. So let's go now to the heli deck and can you just describe what you'd see? So you're standing on a heli deck on top of the, the tuna boat and you look around. Um, what would you expect to see? When you're standing on the heli deck, the heli deck is mounted above the bridge in Vine Labs. Not always. Some of them have got them in different positions. But some of the time these boats have all got them on the heli deck. I love standing up there. I, I'm uh, working on my second novel. I've, I've finished that off. And I described truthfully, uh, I called it riding the chariot. You know, you, I had a white plastic lawn chair and I just sit up there as we were sailing across the ocean. And what you see is nature. You know, I, I just love the um, tuna boat experience for, for just that. I mean, you're crashing along towards the horizon by day or by night. By night, all the stars come out. You have no light pollution, so you really see the Milky Way. And by day, you know, you can be flat calm, you can be rough, you can have spray coming over the bow. For anybody who's remotely a romantic as heart, who loves nature, I mean, tuna boat helideck, sitting up there riding along is just a wonderful place to be. Um, from a pilot flying point of view, you look at it a little differently, and you've got to look at the power of your bird. Um, I've flown the underpowered Bell 47, by coming over 435 engine, which there's no way you're going to take off from the heli deck mostly and go up. So you're actually going to walk and dive to the water, pick up airspeed and fly out. So there's a whole different mindset comes in there. The early R-22s in South America were crashing all the time. were incapable of just taking off from the heli deck. They'll do the same thing, get over the edge, dive to the water, go away. So you look at it from, I'd say, the romantic point of view from the if you love nature, it's a wonderful place to be. From the pilot point of view, you look at the helideck and the approach is, you know, differently. There's a great big section in the tuna manual on uh, approaching downwind and how you can run out of pedal and lose at the critical moment. Again, helidecks vary enormously in size. There's so much involved in doing it safely. You just go approach the helideck as an area that... You treat, treat with a great amount of caution. You know, if you read the Mortgage Student Manual, I'm very honest about all the mistakes I made, and it can just keep you alive. I've got hundreds of emails, hundreds of emails from people saying that helped. You know, that's what I encourage people to do. Is you want know, to step back a bit? I always talk about the amber caution, right? You know, so great place, great adventure, but also something to be treated with a lot of respect. If that makes sense. 
And there's no shelter on that heli deck, so the machines are just sitting out in the open for months at a time with the sea spray and things like that. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, and it, some of the weather conditions. I mean, you will come up. Sometimes it's that bad. You'll come up. It's just encrusted in salt. You do a tremendous amount of fresh water spraying. Um, I would certainly if I'd been herding. I knew there was so much salt around. I would. We would land. We'd put the belly hook on. Uh, maybe put the tie downs on leave it turning and burning, lock down the controls, and I would just rinse fresh water all over the fuselage through the rotor blades, through the tail rotor, just wash the whole thing down. Otherwise, you'll have you know, huge corrosion problems very, very quickly. You could see two helicopters come back after a year, and one will be immaculate, and the other one will be all kinds of problems. And so what sort of, and I know you talked about you know, waxing and polishing yours, and for the photos, it, it looks like it's, it's gleaming. Um, but yeah, so equipment-wise, uh, you're going to have like uh, compressor wash bottles and, and tie-downs. What sort of gear would you take on board with you? We don't take tie-downs on board. I don't know where anybody does that. And the same for the wash bottles. I wore, uh, obviously, you've got your life jacket. I went for the uh, underwater. I was a scuba diver. I was a dive master. And it's such cheap insurance. I bought a little um, breathing bottle. And I wore it across my life jacket. I wore it in uh, in the Gulf of Mexico as well for 11 years. And I practiced in the swimming pool, uh, you know, when we did our underwater escape training. And if you at least get your open water paddy diving license and practice in the swimming pool with the same guy that's doing your huey training, get him to grab you by your legs, hang upside down, whatever you want to do. So you're really comfortable with, the, with using that bottle. That can save your life. I think that's a wonderful thing. The other thing I got was a little flare gun, a little plastic flare gun with six or eight cartridges, usual target rocket if they... Because remember, if you went in the water, the boat might not get to you before nightfall, so it would be really great to whack off some flares. And the usual thing, you know, mirror, dye, stuff like that. If you go in the water, you really want your orange dye. We had a first aid kit, always amused me, and then... Uh, one of my employers insists on giving us an inflatable life raft, which always kind of amused me as well because it was folded up and I had in the bag in the back. And I was kind of always wondering exactly how, if you actually went in the water and upside down, you'd retrieve the life raft. But it was a sympathetic idea anyway. So most importantly, I am a great advocate of the underwater escape bottle, a little air bottle, a little pony bottle. I think that with the training, I mean, you know, if you have no training, you know, on the water escape train, that's not a good idea because you can really uh, hurt your lungs very badly there. That's a wonderful thing. And flare gun, I think it's really, really important. And, you know, those are probably the two items that really jump to mind. You see YouTube videos, Moggy, of people kicking around in, you know, uh, singlet board shorts and, and sometimes without shoes and stuff too while they're flying. Is there, do you have any recommendations on uh, on that? Or, you know, what, what did you used to fly in as far as clothing? Clothing? Well... It was kind of entertaining after a while. I mean, you fly, I flew the North Sea and we had our uniforms and our gold bars and, you know, show back and sides. And I was bored. I was so, so bored. Flying straight lines, you know, money status just doesn't package. You, know, you want to go fly a helicopter and sit in an autopilot, tuning in the ILS, you know, 80 miles offshore and just sitting there until you grab the controls to taxi off the runway. It's just not my cup of tea at all. I want to go flying. It was kind of ironic to go and grow this huge beard and have taffy white shorts and bare feet and 
just behave <laughs> like everybody else. So mostly um, when it comes to style and dress, tuna pilots are completely hooligans <laughs> and they dress very casually. And I think that's part of the fantastic nature of tuna flying. We're not into gold bars, epaulets and, you know, uh, stuff like that. So it's pretty, uh, it's very relaxed, very informal. And that's part of the charm of it. That's, that's really part of the, one of the great parts of joys of it. I mean, there's no way in flying 11 years in the Gulf that you could have a great big woolly beard and uh, it's just it's a totally different kettle of fish. I mean, you're dealing with oil and gas companies spending millions of dollars every week on the helicopters they don't some hobo. But the tuna fields is very liberated flying. I don't think there's... I've never heard of a dress code out there. So from the wearing point of view, it's just about anything goes. We we had we had and we still have some absolute characters out there. Yeah, and um, on on board the boat, there's obviously the captain and, and uh, observer and some key staff there. Can you talk us through uh, so someone who's about to go out to you know for their first uh, tuna flying job, what they need to know about those key people and I guess who they are. I'm glad you can ask that. It gets a little confusing. The Taiwanese captains actually they call them a fishing master and. Then, it confuses Westerners completely. But leaving that aside, let's just call him the captain. What you need to know is, this is just my theory, and I go on, I go, I talk about it a lot in the manual. If you look down on people in the world, they know it. I mean, I've traveled all around the world, worked all over the place, different continents, worked in all kinds of different, you know, activities. If you look down on people, they'll know it. You don't have to say anything, they pick up on it. If you don't, and if you're willing to you know, treat them as human beings, you know, be soft-spoken, um, you know, you, you have much chance of getting on. There's, there's always characters out there who had a very condescending, um, cynical attitude about their crew shipmates. Um, they were really unkind, really, really harsh. I mean, they, they just, you know, didn't see them as human. It led to endless friction. Um, I'm a linguist, I speak six languages, so of course I was really interested in Chinese and I pretty quick figured out that the characters were kind of difficult. But I learned on day one that um, good is hao and bad is pu hao. But in any language in the world, if you know the word for good and the word for bad, with a bit of imagination and hand gestures, you can have a conversation and you can have hilarity, just good and bad, hao and pu hao. Uh, we got along, I learned something like five or six hundred words Chinese, um, including really important words, like psychopath, you know, sent him pin, and describe it all in the blip on the radio stories. I mean, a lot of it was just hysterical. And if you make an effort to communicate, a lot of them don't speak English. The radio operator might speak broken English. If you make an effort to communicate, some of them always want to learn English, and you learn Korean or Chinese. It just opens up a whole new world. The worst thing you can do I think is, I had a guy, uh, knew very well, described him a bit on the radar, and when I worked relief on his boat for three months, I was shocked on the first night, they brought a tray of food to my cabin. So I said, well, why? And I, I went to the captain after I had my meal there. He said, the other pilot doesn't like to eat with the crew, insisting his food being brought to the galley, to the cabin. I'm like, what's that not at all? I said, I'm part of the crew, I'll eat with the crew. So the next night, I went down to the galley, so I had to be there, and I got a virtual standing ovation when I walked in. 
So you can draw a whole conclusion from that. If people see you, if people like you, remember in the water you want them to like you so they come looking for you. If they like you, make an effort to learn the language, make an effort to get on. I mean, Australians and Kiwis tend to be so friendly, they do really well. Some of my American fellow pilots really have some issues with that. If you make an effort to get along as a human being, life's going to be so much happier. Life's going to work so much smoother. But I think that's just a really important point. I worked in uh, Africa, Angola, and the um, chaps there spoke French, the Angolans. I got along with the house on fire. And it was amazing how many times, you know, it, it turned out that there was a lot of friction between the American pilots and the Angolans because the Angolans felt that the American pilots looked down on them. You know, I didn't. I was being Irish. We're kind of neutral. You know, I never really invaded anybody, so nobody's mad at us. <laughs> so I think the big thing I'd love people to think about is, hey, they're human beings. They've all got stories. They're Filipinos, Indonesians. They're, you know, from all over Taiwan, Korea. But they've all got lives, and if they like you, they'll show you their wives, girlfriends, houses they're building, and stuff like that. I think the essential thing is to try and establish rapport. You know, you get the odd guy out there, and the odd captain who's just a certifiable lunatic, and you just can't work with him. I've seen him. I've never had one, but I've seen just impossible situations. Okay, you've got to bail. You've got to get another boat, call your boss, say, look, this guy's impossible to work with. He's nuts. You get the odd one. But most of them are kind of a little intimidated by, you know, the, the pilot. And if you're a human being, man, they just can't do enough for you. They bring you presents and chocolate and stuff like that. So the biggest thing to me, I would say, and this, we talk about it in the manual, and a lot of stories on Blip on the Radar, hey, be a human being. <laughs> Treat them like human beings, and it'll, it'll go so much better for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I guess from a... Doing the actual flying role, and say we pick the observer first. Like, you know, what what do they want to get out of? Like, what job are they trying to do? And and how do you set the helicopter up to to help them do their job? And you know, what, what's their priorities? Obviously, it's to find fish. But yeah, um, these days they've got these they've got these amazing. We had them then, and they've got them even stronger ones now. They've got these gyro stabilized binoculars, and it's absolutely amazing what an observer can see. What can see. I often enough in the nineties would go on my own. I'd be sent off to be busy and go look for fish and I walk my own, which I really like. Most of the time you fly with an observer, the most of the time I flew with an observer. The observer varied from extremely good to absolutely useless. Uh, one guy, I loved him dearly, he was a terrific guy, he was so exhausted, so tired, he kind of gave me this pathetic look and I'd say, yeah, you go sleep. And he'd sleep the whole flight. And if I spawned a log or fish, I'd nudge him up and he'd talk to the captain, pretend that he'd go right back. So he, was, he just wanted to go, the helicopter to him was wonderful. Other guys are really, really serious. And they'll work really hard with the binoculars and they're looking for that tiny little... It's like it's hard to describe when you're up there and you're looking over, you know, horizon to horizon water. But you're looking for... like a, It's like a tiny crease in a tablecloth. You're looking for that tiny little oddity and you can see it even better in the gyro-stabilized binoculars. And off you go and there's your former or there's your breezer. So your observers vary from, they can be your best buddy and they can be, you know, really, really difficult. But as a pilot, there's all kinds of mysterious ways you can get your own back up. And I, I described a story in the clip on the radar of an observer who was a screamer. He was just not very happy with life. And I discovered I could play this wonderful trick with him because the foamers would come up and then go down again. 
they disappear. They'll be up for a couple of minutes and they go down again. So I'd wait till they were down when I knew it was a former there. And I'd say, hey, a guy over there, fish, you know, and he'd look and go, no, 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 he won't go another way. So I'd do it a few times. And every time I'd draw his attention and the fish were going below the surface, I'd call a captain and say, hey, captain, I see fish, but I doesn't want to go there. And of course, he'd go, God damn it. So the next thing, you know, the fish would come up and he would go, oh my God, you know, I'd be a hundred ton. So the captain would give him hell and say, you know, next time you listen to Muggy. <laughs> <laughs> All I was really doing was just winding them up. So it, it, uh, there's lots and lots of ways you can have a lot of fun with them. They vary from extremely good to extremely useless to extremely friendly to, you know, just all sorts. Often you find the captain, if you've got good eyes and you see fish and logs that the captain missed, he'll look at you like, oh, you have good eyes. <laughs> and from then on in, you're in his cabin, you know, sipping brandy. Uh, if you're a, not just a flyer, but you're also willing to look for him, uh, they love you to death because, you know, that's big money. And you had a you came up with a great method of um, defusing issues in the cockpit. So if they wanted to push on, you know, verse past where you were happy to, to fly, either due to light or, or fuel and things like that, you came up with a, a good way of, you know, obviously getting your way and, and heading back to the ship. So didn't want to describe that because that can be used in all kinds of sort of uh, where you're getting pressured by customers or employers. There's been a history of relationships between some captains and some pilots. So when they first get you, you kind of got to establish a rapport, you know. And I mean, there's a captain of a helicopter, you have a captain of a helicopter, and you don't really like being yelled at. There's a million examples of that, and we uh, we talk about it in the manual and in Blip on the Radar. Of many examples that jumped to mind, one was we were right, um, we talk about the gusts of winds out there all come through, You've never seen blade sailing as you have on a tuna boat. And what will come out of a microburst um, is just really dangerous. I described being pretty well blown off the heli deck. The only thing that saved me was the uh, was the belly hook. I had a new captain work with him very long. And where we were, right beside this microburst, the wind was howling. I did not want to shut down. He wasn't on the way, and he didn't want to move the ship out of the way, and I didn't want to shut down. So they kept coming up and saying, uh, shut down, shut down. And I'm going, no, look at this great big black uh, microburst beside us. I don't want to risk my rotor system. Go, we just move the ship away. Power to me, he wouldn't move it. I wouldn't shut down. Of course, eventually he thought I'd run out of gas. So I tied down all the controls and rolled out the fuel hose. And I was going to, it was just him against me. He would just be pure stuff. And I was going to fuel her up and sit and burn his gas for the next two hours until I was dying fine, ready to shut her down. I wasn't going to risk you know, a blade strike. I mean, the wind was just howling through. He was watching me in the crow's nest, and when he saw me roll out the hose, the next thing, there goes the engine, there goes smoke out the funnel, and he moved the way exactly the way I wanted. From then on in, we were the best buddies. So there's a kind of a psychology there. If you rush me, I go slower and have that. There'd be a former come up, they're trying to make a set, they want the helicopter, go, 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 go. Panic, panic, panic. People crash that way. People forgot, I just go slower, and slower, and slower, and slower. I don't, don't shout back, I don't yell, I just go slower, and slower, and slower, until it's overwhelmingly obvious to them. This isn't going to help yelling at them, you know. <laughs> you know, if we ask it nicely, the chances are I'll lob off in a hurry. It's just psychology, you know. I mean, we're all on the boat, it's a, it's a bad place to have bad blood. You know, it's certainly a hell of a place to have a fine. I don't like to have a fine in the book. 
It's just a matter of, you know, the psychology. Lots of examples in uh, a book, Pivot Pip on the Radar, lots of stuff happened there. It was quite funny. But by and large, it always worked out pretty good. Stubborn, I guess, you know, if it ain't safe, it ain't going to happen. If we don't have fuel, we're turning around. Uh, when I get yelled at, that's fine. You know, um, nighttime, we're, you're pilots, you're PSC, you know. They can yell and roar. I mean, on occasions, I just turn down the volume, you know. <laughs> Go ahead and yell, you know. I can see fish on the horizon. Too bad, we're going back. And after a while, it's like almost like a tryout. After a while, they, you know, please, Captain, can we, you know, we get along real well. Excellent. No, the one I was thinking of is where you'd, you'd basically head for home or uh, you'd, you'd put the frictions on and then indicate for them to, to take the controls or you'd uh, point in the ocean and sort of mime uh, swimming and uh, basically point out that you know, if we didn't head back now, they could either try and fly it themselves or they could um, you know, think of the consequences. Some, you're into an aspect of culture here. Some guys go out there and I don't know where they pick up this idea that the boat never has to slow down, speed up, turn into wind, do anything. Whatever it is, they've got to accept it and land. You know, I don't get that. When I was first out there, I get the boat to turn the way I wanted, so the wind was over the deck the way I wanted. I had to slow down, speed up, whatever I wanted them to do. Occasionally, when the wind's howling, I'd have them go downwind, so the relative window of the deck was very, very long. I always got cooperation from the boat. I'm lost as to why a new guy flying a strange helicopter he may not have a lot of time on, maybe he's 500, somehow or another ends up with this idea that whatever situation he's faced with, he's got to accept it and go ahead and try landing. Why? I don't get it. You know, it's, hey, it's all about safety. And I've certainly just always with the ship and I wasn't happy with, you know, um, after a while you build up confidence and it's different. But in the early days, I just all would know, but no, I ain't. No way. You know, I want them to turn. I want them to do this and that. You know, it's gusting 40 knots. I'm not landing that way. I want them to turn. It's just such a headache, you know. And after a while, okay. And as long as they like you, it works out every time. But if you're not comfortable with it, hey, move over. <laughs> Slow down. Speed up. Whatever you want. And they should understand that. I mean, the Taiwanese word for strong wind I learned probably on day two is funk like that. You know, strong wind. Uh, the moment they heard funk, die, die, okay, you may want something, they would cooperate, no problem. But there's a lot of accidents have occurred with guys trying to fly an approach that they weren't comfortable with. And then guys who called me, I got to talk to you on the phone, and emailed me, and we chatted over things that have happened. And, you know, it's, it's not necessary. You know, if, you're, if you don't like it, don't accept it. It's as simple as that. And people have said, oh, well, no, you've got to do it, otherwise you lose your job. Oh, that's more important losing your job or losing your life. You know, it's like you're a pilot in command. You know, the buck stops with you. Don't like it? No. Excellent. Yeah, very much so. And yeah, it's a mindset of, as you said, pilot in command. Uh, you're the guy yeah, who makes the decisions. Moggy, one of the aspects, one of the job parts is going out and dropping. So you, you spotted the, the foamers or the log and you go and drop a, a radio boy there and the ship will come back. And you talk about some shenanigans there with uh, <laughs> other ships, radio, uh, radio boys and, and things like that. But I guess, can, can you just walk us through from the from the cockpit, you know, what it is, uh, how you actually set up an approach, uh, how, how you would make an approach down to the log and then what it actually looks like when the observer's throwing the radio boy out, uh, just for someone who's, who's never seen that. 
I I get a lot of accidents that occur there, and it's really important to understand that, you know, there's been many an incident with uh, radio boys. These days, there seems to be a grazer. I've talked to lots of guys out there, and he knows a grazer and grazer reliance on GPS. I'm kind of puzzled as to exactly how that is meant to work. In the old days, we really liked the logs, and we would attach a radio buoy to a log. A radio buoy, if those on the helicopter, might be 10 foot high, and it sends a signal. No matter where the log drifts, you can know where it is. In a good log area, you might pick up six good logs over a 40-square-mile area, um, each of which have got a lot of bait fish, each of which have got a lot of resident tuna. They're going to be there for a few days or a week as long as they feel like staying there. Yellowfin and skipjack. So if you put a radio buoy on it, you can monitor the position of those logs no matter where they drift. And these days it seems to be less use for the radio buoy, which I don't really quite on the radio buoys, but we had them, we used them continually um, in the 90s. Now a radio buoy goes on the helicopter, whatever you're flying in, like I say, it's maybe 10 foot long, I'm chucking out a number there, sometimes shorter, sometimes a bit longer. When you fly an approach, and again, we talk about this in the manual, if you're looking at a small log, it's actually remarkably easy to lose it. Everybody has this idea you're going to fly a square pattern, you know, downward base and all that, you're going to lose it. I talk about the manual, you're better off just doing a big old descending circle, keep it in sight. You push the radio buoy into wind. There's a bunch of considerations, or the log rather, into wind. You're going to drop your radio buoy. I probably at this stage you ought to mention auto rotation. Auto rotating out there, and we do it, we all do hundreds, thousands of auto rotations. I was a you know, former instructor, instructor rating in the UK, instructor rating in the States, and I instructed helicopters and all that. Thousands of auto rotations, look at auto rotations. Yeah, give it some thought when you do it out in the tuna fields. Big caution here is the famous blue out. If the ocean's flat calm, the water can be translucent. When you approach a log, there are some extraordinary optical illusions that take place that you'll never get on land because you've got no reference points. I described in blip on the radar, classic one of auto-rotating down to, and there's like my 10th auto-rotation in the day, and auto-rotating down coming through what I thought was 150 feet in auto-rotation in that huge 500, all of a sudden realizing I was coming down through 25 feet or 1,500 feet per minute and doing the biggest flare you ever saw in all your life, scaring the pants off myself, what I realized was what I thought was a 20-foot tree it was like a 6-foot sapling. And I know that sounds incredible, but you've got no reference points on a, on a flat cam surface when it's translucent like that. And I'm convinced, and so are many other people, that a lot of accidents have occurred on approach where people have, you know, CFID, controlled flight in terror. So the caution there on the approach to a log is that, you know, you've got no reference points, you've got nothing else floating out there, you've got no boats, you've got no, it's just this log in the middle. It might be, it might be 30 feet, it might only be 10 feet, it might look like a 30 foot tree, but it might only be a 6 foot sapling. That's a big caution you've got to think of right there. I always say beware of blue out, you know, we've got white out into snow, brown out into dust. In the tuna fields we've got blue out. If you, you know, a lot of people have been killed you know, underestimating, including one of my friends, it got killed underestimating um, the dangers of blue eyes. So you fly that approach aware that there is possibility of optical illusions. Like I say, I recommend a great big circle rather than flying it 
rectangular pattern because you're going to lose it. If you approach, you're going to make an assessment. Most of the logs float horizontally. And the chances are, as you're coming to hover over the log to drop the buoy, you're going to have a good visual reference. But beware. There's a thing called a vertical floater. We talk about the vertical floater in the tuna manual, and we talk about the vertical floater in one of the stories on the, on the radar. A vertical floating log is a classic recipe for dynamic rollover. And I described how that occurs in Dip on the Radar and what happens. Maybe we got tied up to the thing and I couldn't see it and trying to hover the helicopter. So the, the decision as to what you're dealing with is going to, you know, 90, 99% of them are horizontally floating. If it's a vertical floater, big amber caution light. When it comes to hover, the observer, there's two methods there. Some of them have a gun and they fire a, a dart um, with compressed air and they pull a rope and drop the radio buoy so it's going to float attached by this dart. Endless horror stories about those pneumatic darts. We've had them bounce off logs, go right up to the rotor blades. Uh, we've had people accidentally shot with them. We've had observers shoot themselves in the leg. My preference was, um, whenever I was asked which you prefer, rope and hooks. Ideally a rope with two hooks. And if the observer is good, he'll throw one hook on one side of the log, the other hook on the other side of the log. So now your rope, which is attached to the radio buoy, is attached to the log, but you're also still attached to the helicopter. So now there's a release rope, pull the release rope, everything falls away, and off you fly. Um, you have now got your radio buoy attached to the log. Caution on that takeoff. As recently emailing backwards and forwards about an accident occurred, how it did all that, and as it accelerated, um, blew out, translucent blue ocean, the overpitched forward CFIT into the water. And another example of blew out, it's not just auto rotations. So lots of big cautions there, and away you go. One of the worst things you can run into is when the guy pulls the release rope, the rope to release the knob, and it jams up. That's what happened to me, and of course, bad luck, it was a vertical log that I couldn't see. I didn't realize what had happened. In a nanosecond, He'd taken off his headset, no doors on the Hughes 500s. I'm yelling my head off too late, and he's climbed out the door to untie the note, untie the rope, not aware of the fact well, I couldn't see the log. So we've got the rope untied, and you start experiencing reverse control, the same as the National Guard guys have described to me experiencing sling loading in Afghanistan and Iraq. You start getting reverse control, and things really go wrong very, very quickly. So, you know, that's just a a rapid-fire machine gun run-through, but we talk about all this at length in Moggy's Tuna Manual and in Blip on the Radar, and we try and give any potential tuna pilot the heads up, and there's a lot more to it. I'm kind of glad you asked me that question. Uh, one of the things that kind of grieves me is when occasionally on a forum you'll read somebody saying, oh, no problem, just go out there, learn on the job, he's just flying in the world, lots of good money. Whoa, Stop. That's just simply not true. You know, let's take a step back and treat it with respect because things go wrong and people get hurt. Yeah, no, and I was really, um, really surprised at how many different operations and different bits and pieces. I was thinking, you know, it would be a fairly straightforward thing, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it sounds very involved. I mean, you get talk about tie down straps and all these different things that are, are, are there. But, but just before we leave the radio boys, I, I might have missed it, but, 
how do you how's the this ten foot antenna loaded? Is it strapped horizontally to the skid and then dropped down from there, or how, how's it actually loaded? Yeah, but I've flown the F forty four out there. I mentioned the same on the L forty seven on the Hughes five hundred. It's uh, well, there's two ways of doing it. One, they lay it across on the forty seven, means it's a big old float. They very often lay the skid, the radio board along along the top of the float. On the Hughes five hundred, because of the way the struts are designed, it's actually easier to hang it under the strut. So it's like there's a ring at the back, and the tip of the radio board goes to the ring on the rear oil strut, and then it's tied around. It's kind of hanging horizontally beneath the helicopter. And again, if you go to uh, our student manual, we have photos in a Kenny and look at that and see exactly the way that works. So it hangs underneath. And then as he, as the observer, attaches the hooks and pulls the release rope, the base of the radio boy falls down into water. And then the rod, which is going through a ring, which is attached to the rear audio strut, slides free out of the audio strut. It sounds horrible. With practice, it becomes pretty routine until it goes wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. And uh, there's a question I didn't, didn't have written down there anywhere, but I was just thinking as we've been talking about the logs, wouldn't it make sense for the boats to actually take out their own artificial logs and then seed an area with those logs to attract the fish? They, you see, a log itself, it's a good question. The log itself is, has no value. Where they become valuable is when all of a sudden they're adopted by bait fish, small fish, and that attracts the tuna. So you, we, we talk about a log area. You might be weeks in an area, there's just no logs. There's nothing floating around. Then all of a sudden you end up in a log area. There's a lot of driftwood coming off, or there's been a storm or something like that. So in one day you might visit as a helicopter pilot 20 different logs. And you're coming, you know, doing that circular pattern down to it, and you come up alongside. And what you're looking for is signs of the tuna. If you have a, a ball, like three foot, six foot, ten foot ball, sometimes much bigger than that, of small fish huddled together, the bait fish obviously you know, huddling together in, in terror, something is hunting them. All you need then is it could not necessarily tuna, but it could be. Now you get really interested, and if you see one tuna breaking the surface, aha! This is a good log, so you might consider putting a radio buoy on it. You may come to a much bigger log, much bigger log with roots and all kinds of stuff, but there's no bait fish, no sign of life. It's useless. That's what puzzled me, and I describe it again in the manual. In my early days, we'd, I'd find this humongous tree, 30 foot floating out there, magnificent tree, and I'd be so proud of myself, and I'd take one look at it. Nah, not interested. And I'm like, what? And then we'd roll up beside this you know, 10-foot little, uh, you know, stump. And the guy would drop the radio boy. And I'm like, what's wrong with my log? What's this little, you know, I couldn't understand it. Because the little 10-foot stump had the bait fish and uh, tuna breaking the surface. So to answer your question, yeah, you could bring all the logs you want, but it, there's no recipe that they will be adopted by fish as their temporary home. Does that make sure. sense? Yep, no, that makes perfect sense. All right, I'm just conscious of time there, Moggy. If you know, if you want to try and summarise, if, if someone's you know they've got the phone call or an email come through and, and said, uh, "Yep, you've, you've got the job," um, you know, be here at this time, and and you're you're off to the tuna boats. You know, how can obviously there's a we'll, we'll give details of how they can get to hold of your book and things like that. But 
how else could they best uh, prepare themselves? And is there anything we haven't really spoken about today um, that you really want to drive home? I think the best thing you can do is inquire locally amongst your helicopter guys. Is anybody around here who's flown tuna boats? Go talk to them. That's that. I really recommend that. Go talk to a guy who's been out there. And it's amazing how many people have actually been out there. Hopefully, most of them will say, read Moggy's tuna manual. <laughs> I know a lot of them do. Doubtless, some of them will say, bah, a lot of rubbish. First time you've ever read it, probably no, but it doesn't mean. Hopefully, they will say, read Moggy's tuna manual. Read it on the radar and give the guy the individual question. I know tropic helicopters, uh, when you walk in the door, apparently, they say, did you read Moggy's tuna manual? And if you say no, they give you a PDF format, which is the whole thing printed out, and uh, they say, read that. <laughs> it's just it's just one of the steps. So I think read Moggy's tuna manual, read it on the radar, go find yourself a pilot who has flown out there and talk to him. And... Take along a pinch of salt. If somebody says, it's all easy, you learn on your job, no problem, pinch of salt. You know, it's like anything in helicopters or in aviation. Step by step, go slow, go easy. And, you know, the, my favorite accident poster is the one that says, been there, done that, been there, done that, been there, done that. Easy, right? Been there, oops. <laughs> That's to a helicopter. And the accident rate is still unacceptably high, so... So talk to people. You know, do your research. Read the manual. Read the. Go find the tuna helicopter pilot and take a, a learning attitude. Whether you've got 300 hours, or 500 hours, or 1,000 hours, or 3,000 hours, or 10,000 hours. You know what you are? You're a student pilot. That's all you are. That's all I am. There's always something that'll come along and teach you a lesson that you walk away from. Like, oh, what did I just do? So, you know. Take a step back and take some humility. I think uh, none of us has enough time to make all the mistakes ourselves as well. So if you can learn from someone else's mistake, that's uh, it's all the better. Yeah, we, we have a lot of sky gods. I mean, aviation is full of sky gods. I mean, you know, they make the conceptions. They kind of amuse me. Um, then, you know, they set themselves up as in sitting in judgment of the whole world and that good. And stories go around of some of the stuff that they did. I, I really didn't want to go that way, so I very honestly describe, you know, some pretty big mistakes flying away from it, going, what did I just do? <laughs> I won't ever do that again. And uh, yep. by the time you've got a story with a chapter title, Eyes of a Dead Man, <laughs> you kind of walk, walk away from it like, oh, what did I just do? I ain't never going to do that again. So, yeah, it's, it's softly. Aviation's wonderful. If, I was a young guy again, and I got an invite to go out and tune a boat. I'd be copper hoop. I'd be so happy. I was such an adventure, flying turbine, building turbine time, lots of flying, seeing funny places. Man, if you can't enjoy that, you're, what's your problem? It's wonderful. It's absolutely exhausting. It's just wonderful. I couldn't, I couldn't even, you know, sometimes I dream of going back out there again. I've got something going on. But, you know, just go out, enjoy it, but have respect for, for the machine, have respect for nature and go softly fly softly is what i would say fantastic well look, thank you so much for sharing uh you know insight to that there and uh you know I, again i think it's going to be whether people are actually heading out there or uh, they're just interested in the tuna flying um there's a lot there and yeah thanks very much for, for sharing a, a bit of insight yeah i'm delighted thank you very much for calling me i appreciate it and uh i hope anybody listening will 
get something from it and fly safe and enjoy yourself, be happy. That was Francis Moggy Mayrick, author of Moggy's Tuna Manual and Blip on the Radar, which you can find pretty easily in Google, and I'll include links to those books in the show notes for this episode on the website. There's also a bunch of photos and videos there that will give a bit of insight into what the operation's all about. So you can see helicopters are herding uh, the fish and, and launching and recovering from the tuna boats there. And again, like all the episodes as well, you can go back and see uh, photos and videos on past episodes too to get a bit more behind the scenes of, of what people have been talking about. And if you do find yourself heading out to the tuna fields or thinking about it, then for six bucks a copy, the tuna manual might just actually save your life as Francis covers a lot of the things that have killed people in the past. And I was chatting off air after the interview and Francis was saying there was you know, still a really high accident rate and that many of the accidents go unreported. So it's kind of hard to actually gauge uh, what's going on and, uh, and where things are happening. He still gets quite a lot of mail from readers of the book telling about their own close calls and parts of the manual that were really useful for, for them. In the show notes for episode 37 at Rotary Wing Show, I'll also link to an Instagram account for Daniel Lucentini. I haven't chatted with Daniel at all, but he is at sea in the tuna fields right at the moment, and he's pretty prolific with the photos on his Instagram account, so you can really see what life is like on board the uh, the ships. If you've got a, a good tuna flying story, uh, some feedback on this episode, or just want to share a thank you to Francis for sharing his time and his experience, then please do drop a, a comment on the blog post. The episode comments and hooking listeners up with each other is something I really want to uh, work on next year. You know, we get some really good listener download numbers, but most of you are are super shy wallflowers when it comes to leaving a comment. So uh, jump online and connect up with other listeners in the uh, show comments and, you know, add and join in on the conversation there. If you know of anyone that runs a flying school that needs help with their marketing, then send them to today's episode's sponsor trainmorepilots.com where they can download some free resources. So at the top of the show, I talked about, you know, it's been quite a a big gap uh, since the last one and I had a quick look. So September 25th was the last time we put out an episode. And again, it's just a a combination of busy part of the the end of the year and and work and things like that piling up. But uh, there's been a a heap of messages come through. And so just very quickly, and I've always got to you know, shy of doing this sort of stuff because I'm probably going to miss someone out. But uh, if I've missed you, uh, I'll try to reply to all the emails and, and cover everyone. But uh, please don't be offended and I'll catch it up another time. But we've had uh, Falco in uh, Germany, Nigel in Melbourne, uh, Nick, he's doing his training in Idaho at the moment. There's Doug, Randy, and Lee in the US. Uh, Alyssa is emailed through. Her husband is actually learning to fly and she's been using the, the podcast while she's been driving to get up to speed on, on helicopters. So, that's a, a great uh, aviation partner there. You're doing a great job, Alyssa. Our Facebook has been uh, Carl Murray Mother in the uh, has been over in the UAE at the moment. I flew uh, Hueys with Murray uh, here in Australia. Uh, Kyle Grant, who's done some time in Angola. Nick is in the Yukon in, in northern Canada. He sent back some photos of the uh, the Northern Lights. Uh, Howie, I uh, got your messages too. And I've spoken with Brett on the uh, phone today. So Brett's in southeast Queensland. We've chatted a couple of times, but uh, yet to actually try and catch up in the flesh. So we'll try and do that uh, in January and then say good day. 
On Facebook, again, I think we just cracked a 1,000. I'm just looking at it now. It's 1,008 uh, people like the, the Facebook page. So uh, thanks again for following it there. And if you're not already following the page, then jump on and check that out. And it'd be really appreciated if you could, you know, mash the share button or, or tag uh, some other industry folks in the uh, Facebook post comments or retweet the show and just uh, spread the news out there and sort of grow that uh, listener base and community and, and kind of share, you know, these stories that we're trying to capture here. And that's the whole idea. So that's it. It's uh, been a long time coming, and uh, we got it out and got it back on, and hopefully we'll uh, keep them rolling uh, next year. I've got a couple of ones lined up and just hooking up uh, times to do the interview. So wishing everyone a, a safe Christmas period wherever you are, and uh, talk to you soon in 2016.